Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 2. We're in the early stages as a church of a series in the book of Acts. We are exploring that book together, uh, or as I've been referring to it, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his apostles, right? That's the, the longer name of the book that we are going with. Uh, in any case, we looked at the first half of Acts chapter 2 last week. Uh, Andy led us through that part of the study, and we saw there that the events that take place in Acts chapter 2 take place or took place on the day of Pentecost. And that was the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, and it was the day that the church was born. Uh, now, because that was the day the church was born... It means that Acts 2 records for us the very first sermon that was ever preached in the history of the Christian church. Uh, Andy led us through the first part of this sermon last week. It begins in verse 14. We're going to look at the conclusion of this sermon next week. Uh, But today we're going to concentrate on verses 22 to 36 of Acts chapter 2. So let's read it. Here's what it says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So obviously this is an abbreviated form of the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. I mean, reading the whole thing from verse 14 to verse 41 takes about three minutes. And I know some of you might wish that sermons were that length, um, This one is not that short, so be forewarned of that. This one's going to be longer than that. Uh, I entitled this message, Jesus with a capital J. A sermon about Jesus. 
Shocker, I know. Now, you've no doubt heard the story of little Jimmy and his experience in Sunday school where the teacher asked the class what is brown and furry, has a tail and stores nuts for the winter. And as she called on little Jimmy, he said, well, you know, it sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but because this is Sunday school, I'm pretty sure the correct answer is Jesus. I mean, the the correct answer in church is always Jesus, right? I I remember being at a pastor's conference a number of of years ago, and I attended a session on preaching where there uh, was a panel on stage. It was a group of, you know, four kind of renowned preachers. They were sitting on stage. They were interacting with each other, taking questions uh, from those who were there as well, the attenders of the, the sessions. And one of the questions was just simply, what are you currently preaching on? And, you know, each of those men um, gave their answer to that. They, they, I, I really like those kind of exchanges because, you know, you, you kind of get some barbs and some uh, that sort of stuff going on as well. So they said, you know, the first three guys were like, you know, I'm preaching on this book or I'm preaching on this book or I'm doing a series on this right now. And the other guys would, would kind of weigh in with, you know, witty comments and all of that. And then the fourth guy answered the question. And he said, well, actually, I'm preaching a sermon on Jesus or a sermon series on Jesus right now. I mean, what, what can you say that's sort of witty in response to that, right? But then one of the other panelists said, oh, for or against. Um, it, was, it was kind of a funny moment. I, maybe you had to be there for that. So you're sitting in church this morning, and maybe, you know, it's not all that surprising for me to say I'm preaching a sermon about Jesus, Jesus with a capital J, as I've called it. But actually, as strange as it sounds... There's no guarantee that Jesus will be the center of what you hear when you step into a church. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who told me that they visited a few different churches this summer. And he has this little habit when he goes into a a new church uh, uh, like that. uh, He sort of... I'm not sure I understand. understand. Siri doesn't understand. He he says he kind of keeps a timer... How long does it take before they speak about Jesus uh, in the songs or in the sermon? And he said he was in one church this summer, and it was the 53-minute mark of that service before the name Jesus was mentioned. So I want to say that this message, that the, the, the sermon from Peter that we are unpacking today is vitally important. Pretty much everything we believe as Christians hinges on what Peter says in this sermon or what he preaches in this sermon. Peter's sermon is about Jesus. Now, before we unpack it, I just I think it's worth emphasizing that simple truth, that this is a sermon about Jesus. The beginning of Acts chapter 2, as you know, describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We might have expected... Peter then to stand up and to preach a sermon about the Holy Spirit. I mean, that would be a good thing to do. It's a proper thing for us to do, to reflect on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But Peter's sermon, the very first sermon in the history of the Christian church, is centered on the person and work of Jesus. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes will people say things 
They'll say things like, oh, you know, that's a spirit-filled church. I mean, they talk a lot about the spirit over there. They talk a lot about the gifts of the spirit in that church. It's a spirit-filled church. And I would just say to you, the first mark of a spirit-filled church is a church that talks a lot about Jesus. It's a church that makes much of Jesus. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit upon us to be filled with the Spirit? It means as people and as His church, we make much of Jesus. So in any case, Peter's sermon is focused on Jesus, and actually it has an easily discernible flow to it. So we're going to look at four things that we learn here. Firstly, we learn about the life and ministry of Jesus. We see this in verse 22. Peter begins by saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So much to glean from that one simple verse. So regarding his life, the first thing we ought to note is that Peter refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And that little note helps us understand the historicity of Jesus. Right? People living in the first century didn't have surnames. The way you distinguished between two people who had the same name was by some other marker or uh, designation. So, you know, James the son of Alphaeus or Simon the Tanner or here, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth. And the historicity of Jesus is not an incidental matter. Jesus is not an idea. He can't be reduced to a set of ethical teachings or a philosophy of life. He is, as Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is one of the distinguishing features of the Christian faith. So Luke, who wrote the, gospel, or who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And you might remember that Luke's Gospel begins like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke tells us, look, he writes his gospel as an investigative reporter of sorts, or like a historian. He wants to make sure he has his facts straight. And then Luke chapter 2, which describes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, begins like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So Luke doesn't begin his account of the birth of Jesus by saying, you know, in a time far, far, or a time long, long ago, in a land far, far away, he begins by saying this took place at the time when Caesar Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire. It took place at a time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And this is very different from what you read in all other religious writings or sacred texts. 
So I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to read the Quran, for instance, but what you find if you read it is that there's almost no reference to history. There's no mention of historical people outside of the prophet, no mention of historical places or specific time periods. In fact, it could have been written in any one of a number of different centuries. And that's actually true with regard to most religious writings. But the Christian faith is rooted and grounded in history. It's rooted in the events of what we now call the first century. Christianity is rooted in history. It is centered in the person, Jesus of Nazareth. This verse also helps us understand something else about the life of Jesus, namely the humanity of Jesus. Notice again what Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Now, Jesus was more than a man, but he wasn't less than that. He was fully human. From his birth through his death, Jesus experienced everything you and I experience. He ate real food. He did real work. He felt real pain and was presented with genuine temptation. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, like you and me, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, the reason, or the only reason, Jesus could make propitiation for the sins of humanity was because he was fully human. And the witness of the New Testament is that Jesus was like us in his full humanity, but also unlike us because he never sinned. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So that's what we learn about the life of Jesus. Learn he's a person of history. We learn he was fully human. Now, when it comes to the ministry of Jesus, Peter mentions the miracles that Jesus did. He says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And Peter is stressing two things as he speaks about the mighty works and the signs and the wonders that Jesus did. The first is that these miracles served as a kind of attestation from God, validation from God, or verification from God of who Jesus was. Now, we've looked at Jesus' miracles in the past, and we've explored some of those specific miracles, and we've pointed out that, you know, many of Jesus' miracles were motivated by his compassion, right? He's moved to pity as he sees the hungry crowd. He's moved to tears as he stands by the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Jesus' miracles demonstrate his compassion, but they do far more than that. Now, if you go through all the Gospels and you tally up all the miracles that Jesus did, you'll come away with some 36, at least 36 miracles or signs that Jesus did. There's a lot of emphasis on the miracles, the works that Jesus did. In fact, if you take a look at the Gospel of Mark, you'll find there are 661 verses in the Gospel of Mark. 229 of those verses deal with the miraculous. 
Jesus heals people from fever, from leprosy, from paralysis, from a withered hand, from hemorrhaging, from blindness, from muteness, lameness, deformed limbs, dropsy, demon possession, and even death. There's a number of nature miracles. As you know, he changes water to wine. He miraculously feeds thousands of people with just a a, a few loaves of bread and a couple small fish. He stills a raging or calms a raging storm. He curses a fig tree. Every one of the miracles Jesus did communicated something about Jesus. His miracles showed his authority over nature, his authority over disease, his authority over the spiritual realm, his authority over life and death. But Peter's point isn't just that Jesus did a lot of miracles, but also that these miracles were public and they were witnessed by many. Peter says that Jesus did these things in your midst as you yourselves know. Uh, Later in the book of Acts, you'll find that Peter uses that same line of reasoning as kind of an apologetic as he talks to the crowds. He'll say this, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So this is Peter's starting point in his sermon about Jesus, right? We ought to think, or when we think about Jesus, we ought to remember his uniqueness, the life he lived, the ministry that he did. Second thing we learn about here is the death of Jesus, and this is what we see in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And I would just say that we do not understand the gospel if we do not understand the death of Jesus. You can't read very far in the New Testament without bumping into the cross. The sacrificial death of Jesus takes center stage in the book of Acts, or in the preaching in the book of Acts, and it ought always to take center stage in the preaching of the church today. So I I taught through our baptism class with a group of seven individuals uh, last week, and we always begin that class uh, with the question, what is the gospel? And we begin that section, that answering that question, what is the gospel, by looking at some inadequate definitions of the gospel that are offered up in some popular Christian writings. So I left the quotes anonymous, but here's a sample of gospel definitions. Here's one. The good news is God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of your old negative mindsets that hold you back? Listen, you don't need Jesus for that kind of gospel. That's just the power of positive thinking with some vague references to God thrown in. Another definition ran along these lines. The good news is that God's face will always be turned towards you, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. 
Now, when I read that, I, I couldn't help but think, is that the gospel or is that a Backstreet Boys song? Okay, that's how old I am. I don't care who you are, where you've been, or what you, you know? Look, it is because of God's love that he sent Jesus. But he sent Jesus not just to show us how to live, but to die for our sins. So here's how the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is the gospel that saves you. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And here in Peter's sermon, the very first sermon preached in the Christian church, he highlights the death of Jesus. And in doing that, he says a couple of things that are important for us to understand. Listen to what he says again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed by the hands of lawless men. And when he says that Jesus was delivered up, We might naturally think of what Judas did. I mean, Judas delivered up Jesus to the authorities, right? That's actually the the language, same verb is used when it speaks about that in the Gospels to describe what Judas did. But what Peter says is that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that same event is described simultaneously as being the purpose of God, or it's ascribed to the purpose of God and to the wickedness of men. Both of those things are true about the death of Jesus. And Peter's point was not just that his audience knew about the execution of Jesus. His point was also that they played a part in it. Peter says, this Jesus you killed by the hands of lawless men. Now this becomes explicitly clear again in verse 36 when he says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So time up. Maybe that doesn't sound fair or that sounds like it's unfair to you. And maybe that sounded unfair to some who were in the audience who heard Peter's sermon. I mean, after all, wasn't it the Romans who actually crucified Jesus? And even though some of the Jewish religious leaders had conspired against him and handed him over to the authorities, wasn't that only a fairly small number of people who should bear the responsibility for that? How could Peter say to his audience, you killed or crucified Jesus? And can he say that to us? And I would say that Christianity will never make sense until we grasp this truth, until we see ourselves in need of a Savior who would pay the penalty for our sin. See, Peter's point is that Jesus went to the cross not ultimately, not ultimately because of the Jews or because of the Romans. He went to the cross because of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and he went to the cross because of our sin. 
He went to the cross because of the de- decree of God that this is how the sins of humanity could be atoned for. So we all had a part in sending Jesus to the cross. It was my sin and your sin that he came to die for. Uh, one artist who seemed to understand this, at least in part, was Rembrandt. And his painting, the, the raising of the cross that I think we have on screen, features Roman soldiers lifting up the cross of Jesus, surrounded by a crowd. But Rembrandt also painted himself into that picture. And the man standing near the feet of Jesus, wearing the painter's hat, is Rembrandt's self-portrait. And if we are to have an accurate picture of the significance of Christ's death, then we ought to see ourselves in that picture as well. It's because of our sin that Jesus went to the cross. So we learn about the life and ministry of Jesus. We learn about the death of Jesus. And thirdly, we learn about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Verse 24 says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Some interesting language in that verse. It says that, that God raised Jesus up and that he loosed him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The the language Peter is using here is actually the language of birth. The word for pangs is the word that's usually used for birth pangs or for labor pain. And those of you who have children or who've had children, uh, you know that a baby will come when a baby is ready to come. And that when a baby is ready to come, there's not a lot you can do to stop it. So our first three kids were all born on Sundays. I mean, we didn't plan it that way, but I thought it was pretty fitting for pastor's kids. We were kind of hoping for the fourth one, but she was a Tuesday. But I remember one of those Sunday births in particular because I almost missed it. Uh, I was teaching a class at the church, and Ilona came in to to say goodbye. She was heading home with the kids, and labor started on her drive home. Uh, She almost didn't make it to the hospital. I got a a panicked phone call. Uh, I bolted out of the church the way some of you bolt out of here on Sunday mornings to go get brunch. I, I drove to the hospital like a madman. I made it with about 20 minutes to spare. See, when a baby comes... Or when a baby is ready to come, it comes. You can't stop it. That's the language Peter is using here when he says God loosed Jesus from the pangs of death and that death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. See, Jesus' resurrection was a demonstration that death is defeated. Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. He says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus has defeated death. But again, the resurrection of Jesus was not just sort of an abstract idea. This is not a metaphor. Peter is referring to the physical resurrection of Jesus' body. Now, if Peter were a lawyer and he he were making his case as he kind of walked around the courtroom he now appeals to the eyewitness testimony of those who had seen Jesus in his risen state. Listen to what Peter says in verse 32. So just jump down a little bit. 
he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Eyewitness testimony is always given extra weight when examining evidence. And the book of Acts actually records not just this sermon from Peter, but several other of Peter's sermons. And his eyewitness testimony of encountering Jesus in his resurrected form appears prominently in those sermons as well. Here's what Peter said. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 5. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Or in Acts 10, he says, And we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Eyewitness testimony. Look, I saw him. But you know, as helpful as that eyewitness testimony is, Peter's own encounter with Jesus, the testimony of Scripture is actually even more powerful. You know, when you go back and read the resurrection accounts, it's interesting, for instance, that when Jesus, you know, when those two women, or when the women went to the tomb on that first Easter morning, they found it empty. They're greeted by the angels. The angels don't try to convince them that Jesus is alive or has been raised on the basis of physical evidence. They don't say, you know, here's the clothes. Actually, what they, what they convinced the women by is saying, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Or later, as Jesus talks to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, He's going to tell them all the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi predicted not just the coming of the Messiah, but his death and his resurrection as well. And these predictions or these prophecy, prophecies occurred hundreds of years before Christ came. So in Luke, it says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that's actually the nature of Peter's appeal as well. In verses 25 to 28 here, he quotes from Psalm 16, a psalm written by King David. Where David said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter then unpacks that psalm for us in verse 29 and following. And his basic argument is, look, David couldn't have been talking about himself when he said those things. Because he died. His flesh saw corruption. His body is still rotting in the grave. But Jesus' body did not undergo corruption. He rose on the third day. So we learn about the life and ministry of Jesus. We learn about the death of Jesus. We learn about the resurrection of Jesus. The final thing we learn about here is the exaltation of Jesus. Listen now to verses 33 to 35. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter now quotes from Psalm 110. And that psalm again indicates David is speaking about someone other than himself. But, but just think about this. David was Israel's greatest king. He is held up as the, or he was held up as the gold standard of kings for all the generations after him until the time of Jesus. And Peter's point is that in spite of all of David's greatness, he doesn't hold a candle in comparison to Jesus. David not only died, his body, but his body remains in the ground. David ruled, but his reign came to an end when he died. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus is in a completely different category altogether. Jesus died, but overcame the grave. The cords of death couldn't hold Jesus. And even more than that, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. This is why we often say that the significance of Easter is not just that Jesus was raised, but that Jesus is risen. He is right now at the right hand of God. I've mentioned this a few times already as we've been studying the book of Acts, but Peter's quotation here helps us see the already and the not yetness of God's kingdom or of Jesus' reign. Jesus is right now at the right hand of God. But his enemies have not yet been made his footstool, right? So theologians talk about this in terms of the kingdom being inaugurated but not consummated. It's begun but it's not completed. There's still more to come. So we learn here about Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. That is the simple gospel outline. Uh, we, we don't sing it a lot anymore, but I had a friend in college who came to understand the gospel by walking into a church for the very first time and hearing the song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Maybe you remember that from the 80s or 90s, whenever that was popular. But the chorus of that song says, You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. That's the basic outline of Peter's sermon. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, Peter goes on in verse 36 to say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, as we think about it, we've broken this sermon into three chunks as we're unpacking it together as a church, but I think we should remember that Peter's words here are part of the larger sermon that he delivered on the day of Pentecost. So I want to take you, we ended last week at verse 21. I want to take you back to that verse. Because that verse says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quotation from the Old Testament book of Joel. And if you were reading that, you would understand that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, will be saved. Peter then takes that and he expounds on that. And he essentially says, you need to understand who that Lord is. He is the one who was born into this world. 
He is the one who did all those miracles among you. He is the one who was crucified on a cross. He is the one who has risen from the dead and is now on a throne in heaven. If you call on him, if you call on Jesus, you will be saved. And some of you need to do that. Now, now you might be new here. You might have been coming for a short while. You might have been coming for a long time. Have you called on the name of Jesus in order that you might be saved? And have you said, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I now understand that you paid the penalty for my sin, that you offer me resurrection life. And so I call on your name in order that I might be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that he gives us and has brought to us and offered to us. And Lord, I pray there would not be anyone in this room who misses that. I pray that all of us who have already claimed that, who have called on your name, I pray that we would reflect on the meaning of that for our lives. I pray we would reflect on Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and that that would fill our hearts with wonder and joy and lead us to worship. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.